welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. As you take your seat this morning, let me invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 today. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the pew in front of you. You can use one of those. You probably have a Bible on your phone. You can, uh, you can use one of those as well. As long as you have a Bible in front of you, that's all that matters. And we're going to go verse by verse and look at uh, chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews and look at verses 1 through 10. As you turn there, let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the truth in your word that, uh, that you spoke all things into creation, things that didn't exist, things ex nihilo. You spoke out of nothing and created everything that we see. And so we thank you for that, that the word uh, of your mouth is powerful. And so we know that just a word from you today could change everything in our lives. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, We know uh, from your word that Jesus described uh, the enemy comes and steals away the seed of your word. And so we pray that that we would hear your word clearly today and that it would apply to us and that we would put it into action and obedience. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that it is powerful and sharp and pray that you would use it like a scalpel today to help us understand ourselves and to help us know you better and to walk with you and glorify you. Would you come among us and be our teacher, as your word says, and uh, that the Holy Spirit will be our guide and our teacher? Would you give us discernment? Would you help us to divide truth from error? And would you help us all to be uh, like the Bereans, who are more noble than those of Thessalonica, that they listened to the words that Paul spoke and they tested everything with the word to see that it was so? Would you give us that sort of attention to your word, that we would uh, listen carefully and hear the words that you want to speak to us today, knowing that it could change our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And just to give us the context of that, I'm going to back up and read 4, 14 through 16. Those are the the three verses before uh, chapter 5. And so starting in Hebrews 4, 14, The author of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just like we are, yet was without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people." And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, there's an awful lot here. And just to catch you up on the context of this particular passage that we're looking at, the audience that the author of Hebrews is addressing, the audience was tempted to go backward into Judaism. They had experienced persecution. Remember that from Hebrews 10, the very first sermon in this series. They had uh, had their possessions taken. They had been dragged into prison. They had been abused. They had been tortured. And because of the persecution and the suffering that the original audience was experiencing, those Christ followers, the, uh, the author of Hebrews comes to them and says, I know you're tempted to go backward into Judaism. I know you're tempted to backslide from this faith in Jesus Christ. But let me assure you that Jesus is superior in every way to anything that you would ever go back to. And so for us in the room, you might be a believer in Jesus Christ. You may have given your life to Jesus and you might call yourself a Christ follower. And because of that, you may have experienced difficulties, troubles, persecutions, hardships, but you also know the joys of a relationship with God. You know the assurance and the the peace that He offers and the satisfaction to your soul. You know the, the thrill of answered prayer and you know the excitement of forgiveness of sins and, and a clean conscience and being able to sleep with peace and, and having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people. And so you understand that there is incredible benefits to knowing Jesus Christ. Amen? You understand that. And because you understand that, uh, you can endure through difficulties and through trials and temptations. James chapter 1 says that you should count it all what? All joy whenever you face what? Trials of various kinds. No matter what trial you go through, because of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can say, amen, I, I don't love this trial that I'm going through, but it is something that I can count as joy because of the great work in me that Jesus has done. Now, in spite of that, if you're experiencing incredible suffering and trial and difficulty, a part of your flesh may tell you, is it really worth following Jesus? The enemy may even whisper in your ear, is Jesus worth following? Is your faith really that important to you? Uh, Couldn't you just walk away and go back to a different way of life where you wouldn't experience suffering and you wouldn't experience persecution? That's the idea. The big idea behind Hebrews is the author is telling these Jewish believers, don't go backward. You've passed the point of no return. Don't backslide into a former way of life that really has no life to offer you. Remain in Christ. Hold fast to the confession because Jesus is superior and He's worth it. The argument at this point is He's already talked about how Jesus is greater than angels that mediated the Old Covenant. He's already talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses who initiated the Mosaic Covenant. He's already talked about Jesus is greater than Joshua. Now He's going into the idea that Jesus is greater than the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood. We don't know a whole lot about priesthood. It's a foreign concept to those of us who are not Jewish and who are not from uh, Judaism, but it is a part of the Old Testament covenant. And so we want to flesh that out and find out why is Jesus better than the priesthood? So here are a couple of big questions that this passage brings up. Questions that you may not even know you need to ask these questions, but here are the questions that you may need to think about in relationship to these 10 verses that are our focus this morning. Why do we even need a priesthood? 
Why do we even need a priesthood? What is a priesthood? What's its function? And why do we need a priesthood? We don't know how good we have it. I was speaking to a young man this morning and he was describing uh, adulting and some of the hard decisions that he's making. And, and I remember that time when I was 18 to 20 and, and, uh, and I, I thought about all the responsibilities that I was taking on, all the financial responsibilities, all the school responsibilities. Being an adult, the first time on your own, it's a big responsibility. But now as a parent and as a pastor, and as, I've got all these other responsibilities and I didn't realize how good I had it Right when I was 19 years old and I had to worry about things like the next meal and you know I had to worry about uh, big things like which video game am I going to play or or where I'm going to go out tonight or which friends I'm going to spend time with you know parents of young children would swap Beth said just a few minutes ago how her hobby is like full-time children right I mean that's just kind of the way life is and sometimes we don't realize how great we have it uh, until we experience something different we've never experienced a priesthood If you're grateful for something in your life, you stop. You may just raise your hands and say, Jesus, thank you for this blessing in my life. If you were functioning according to the old covenant, if you had a a, if you were thankful for something, you prepared what? A thank offering. You prepared a grain offering, a drink offering, a thank offering. You found your your local priest and you had to go through the priest to offer the correct amount of sacrifices because you didn't have a relationship with God outside of a mediator. We don't realize how great we have it. So why do we need a priesthood? We want to talk about that this morning. We want to talk about this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. Anybody in the room named Melchizedek? No, no Melchizedek's in the room. Uh, What is the meaning of this mysterious guy, Melchizedek? I know that's the question that you were hoping I would answer this morning uh, as you went to bed last night. We want to talk about why Jesus is described as a priest in Melchizedek's line instead of the regular order of priests. What was the regular order of priests? They were Levites, right? The priestly line came through the Levites. There was a whole division. You couldn't be a priest if you weren't a Levite. There was a separate division of high priests. High priests came only through the line of who? Through Aaron. Only Aaron. You couldn't be a high priest unless you were in the line of Aaron. Aaron was a Levite. But Aaron was Moses' brother, and the priestly line came through the line of Levi. The high priests were only chosen through Aaron. So we're going to get into a lot of that as well. Another question that you might not have picked up here is it says that Jesus learned obedience. He learned obedience. How did Jesus' humanity and his deity work together? Right? If all things were created through Jesus, according to John chapter 1, according to Genesis 1, if Jesus was uh, not created, but he was eternally God and with God forever, how did Jesus incarnate become a learner? Why did he need to learn? Why did, how does Jesus' humanity and his deity work together that made him the perfect high priest? So it may be best just to kind of work through this passage uh, verse by verse. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says that every high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does 
for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So that's verses 1 through 4. And he's talking about human leaders within God's kingdom. So what does it describe about these human leaders? Well, it says that they're chosen from among men. They're appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. uh, And that it describes them as somewhat weak, uh, somewhat sinful. So let's talk about this for a few minutes. It is a mystery that God calls weak and sinful people to positions of service and authority. The high priest was called to serve men by relating to God through the prescribed way. There was a prescribed way that people had to approach God. There was a way in which they they couldn't just do it any way they wanted to. As a matter of fact, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it says that uh, repeatedly throughout the book of Judges that uh, there was no king in Israel and everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. Five times it says that in the last four chapters. And it describes a chaotic mix of crises and horrible things that were happening throughout this time because people were frankly doing exactly what they want. Uh, You may have listened to, and if you haven't ever listened to the sermon, 10 Shekels in a Shirt by a guy named Paris Reedhead, just just raise your hand if you've listened to that sermon. I would be shocked if more than five people have heard it. It's an amazing sermon that I highly recommend. Uh, It's an annual sermon that I listened to for the last 15 years, uh, preached in the 60s by a man named Paris Reedhead, but it describes Judges 17 and uh, a particular instance with Micah and the Levite. And this particular instance, um, Micah called to himself a priest who would serve him, and he did this in a selfish way that said, now God will bless me because I have a Levite, and he made this idol, and he set up an ephod, and he also set up his own little household uh, temple, and he had all these things going for him, but he was really uh, just worshiping in his own way, not the prescribed way. God was extremely particular in the way in which he wanted to be worshiped, in the way in which we could relate to him. And you couldn't just wing it, you couldn't just do it in your own way. That's the point of Judges. There was a way in which you had to approach God. And if you have any questions about that, just Slog through the book of Leviticus, right? Have anybody ever tried to do the Bible in a year and you start strong and you, you muscle through Genesis 1 through 11 and you think this is the best, the foundations, the incredible thing. Then you get into the call of Abram in Genesis 12 and then you get through 39 and Joseph is going into Egypt and all these incredible things unpack in the book of Genesis and then you get to Exodus and it's, it's just as good. And then you hit Leviticus, Right? And then you start to think, why have the wheels come off of this thing? And then you get into Deuteronomy. And then, you know, all these places you start to stall out. And then your Bible reading ends in the, book of, uh, in the month of March, right? And then you circle back around when it gets to Jesus, right? Then you have to go through the prophets. And so your summers kind of get hard when you follow those regular Bible calendars. Uh, I, I, I know I've been through this cycle before. Side note, if you need help with a Bible calendar, I can help you with a, a Bible calendar that will get you through those tough times. If you've never read the Bible through in a year, which is a great discipline, I highly recommend it. Uh, I can help you. I have a variety of Bible calendars that will help you do that. But back to this situation about the priesthood, we understand that he's beset with weakness. The priest had to make sacrifice for the sins of the nation, but before he could do that, he had to make sacrifice for his own sins. And he only did this one time a year at the Day of Atonement in the fall, right? Uh, 
uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would atone for his own sins and he would atone for the sins of the people through the blood of a spotless lamb. And he did this because this was the way that God prescribed we could have a relationship with him. It was only if our sin was atoned for. And so we needed this priesthood. We needed these mediators. And we had to understand that we needed to relate to God through this system that he prescribed. So why do we need this priesthood? Well, the big reason is because God is holy and because we are not. God is holy and we are not. We are separated from our sins. Isaiah 59 two says, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's Isaiah 59 two. Have you ever wanted to have a better relationship with God? Have you ever tried to pursue a better relationship with God? You, you, you get your prayer materials out. You get your Bible out. You, you begin again in this devotional or in this uh, discipline. And, and you struggle. And then you encounter temptation. And then in all these ways, there is this sort of battle that happens inside of you. On one hand, you, like Paul said in Romans 7, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the, the bad things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. Woe is me, right? Have you ever felt that way? That I'm trying to have a better relationship with God, but I struggle. Well, this is the reality of our iniquities separating us from God. Jesus is a better high priest because he makes that possible. He makes it possible for you to have a relationship with God. He makes that possible for you to be able to relate to God. Not by going to Jerusalem to offer a prescribed set of offerings for anything that happened in your life. By dwelling within you. So the high priest was human and he was subject to his own weakness. And I want to take this moment just to acknowledge the reality that God's leaders are flawed and weak. Have you ever experienced that? Yes, you're experiencing that now, right? Yes, you're experiencing that now. A few weeks ago, I, I had an episode up here where I just I couldn't get through my notes. And I was 10 minutes, 17 minutes into the sermon, uh, I just said I can't go on anymore. And I went into the back room and... Ten minutes later, I was in the emergency room uh, and getting IVs. And, and, and there's a lot of weakness and struggle and difficulty that goes into God's leadership. And listen, we struggle with flawed leaders, don't we? We struggle with flawed leaders. It's a mystery to us why God would call broken people to such an important role. And I'm not talking about myself here. I'm talking about the people that God has placed in authority over you. Government leaders, spiritual leaders, national leaders, world leaders, civic leaders, officers. There are all kinds of authorities that God has placed over you. And one of the godliest things you can do is be subject to those that God has put over you. And something within us struggles with that. There's a pride and there's a difficulty within us to submit and to to yield ourselves to someone that we view as flawed. And it's not just me that I'm talking about, although that's difficult. God has put me in a position of authority. And, uh, and Hebrews 13.7 says that you should be subject to those that God has put over you. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do that with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so the command for you as a, as a Christ follower is that you must obey the leaders that God has placed over you. He has put you under spiritual authority. 
And you must be submissive to those authorities. One of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is yieldedness and submission. One of the greatest signs of spiritual immaturity is pride against those that God has placed in authority over you. And this will be a lifelong struggle for all of us. And we struggle with it. I think we struggle with it because we desire our leaders to be better. And and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that in my humble and accurate opinion. Uh, I think that God still requires submission and obedience to those whom he places in authority over us, but it's their flaws and weaknesses that oftentimes the Lord uses like sandpaper to rub off the rough edges of our lives. We see that Jesus was chosen. He was appointed. The high priest was also chosen among men. It likely came through the process of Urim and Thummim. (laughs) Those are the two uh, sort of dice-like things that they would use in the Old Covenant to uh, find out God's will for their life. Uh, And so they would cast lots. You've heard that described before. Uh, The breastplate of the priest, the ephod, would, would have Urim and Thummim. And this was a way of discerning God's call. This was likely the way in which the high priest was chosen from the line of Aaron, that year after year a new high priest was appointed uh, and he was chosen in this way and they understood that from Leviticus, that this was a a way in which God called the high priest. So God chooses and appoints people to serve in various roles in his kingdom. Elders, deacons, officers, leaders, ministry leaders, missionaries. There is a sense of calling and mission and it's, it's a wonderful mix of Beauty and kind of befuddlement, right? Why would God choose that guy? Or why would God choose this person? Or why would he choose her to do this? There's a way in which God gets glory in that process, you know. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chooses, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is now low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be able to brag or boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A couple of things as I leave this point. Uh, Be very careful about the way you exalt a human leader. God chooses weak and he chooses broken things. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, God said, my grace is what? It's sufficient for you because my power is what? It's made perfect in your weakness. You know, there's a way in which God gets glory from broken people whom he calls to, uh, to... himself to be used according to his purposes. And so when you take your focus off God and Jesus Christ as your leader and as your shepherd and you exalt a human leader who might have great gifts of leadership or great gifts of communication and all these ways that God has blessed some men and women and and he uses them, there's a danger and it plagues American Christianity the most because we have a sort of hero worship of our spiritual leaders. There's a way in which we might say, well, I follow you know, Matt Chandler, or I follow Mark Driscoll, or I, I, do, I, I listen to only John Piper, or, or I'm a, you know, John Calvin only. Or, we have a way of just kind of exalting human leaders 
in an unhealthy way that makes for the celebrity pastor, the celebrity spiritual leader, that makes that a term. We have a term for that. And because we have vocabulary surrounding that, it's an unhealthy culture. And so the warning is, be careful in the way in which you might exalt human leaders. Understanding that God calls broken people to Himself. And God is able to account for their brokenness to work in your life in such a way that's beneficial. Even through their flaws and their weaknesses and their struggles. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, keep looking. You will not find him on this stage or in this pulpit. What you will find is someone who loves Jesus and who seeks God on your behalf on a regular basis. That may be about the best thing I can say about myself at this time. (laughs) So there's a danger in exalting human leaders, but there also needs to be an understanding that they're weak and they're flawed and they're struggling. They need grace. They need mercy. And so if there's a pastor, a former pastor, or someone in leadership around you, be extremely gracious toward that person. Understand that they have difficulties and the weight of ministry often creates a wake of temptation and a persecution and a level of attack that's different from the, uh, from the average person. The second thing that we see in this passage uh, that's interesting is we have insight into the spiritual life of Jesus. Did you notice in, in verses 7 through 9, there is incredible insight into the humanity of Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 9. We get insight into Jesus' prayer life as a priest. It says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication. What's a supplication? Supplication is just a request. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How did He do that? With loud cries and with tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Isn't that an interesting insight? How many of you have ever prayed with loud cries and with tears? Yeah, a lot of you. A lot of you have, have a wayward child. Have a lost child. A few years ago, a dear friend of mine in Little Rock, Arkansas, her 12-year-old son, Drake, was out on a walk after a terrible storm and in this flash flood situation. The one friend of Drake was walking in front and when they passed over a drainage ditch where water was flowing, the friend turned around and Drake was gone. For two or three hours, the police, everybody was called out. They couldn't find Drake. They couldn't find him anywhere. And eventually, after several hours, they found him in a drainage area where the water had swept him under the little roadside drainage area into and under the creek and out into the drainage area. Listen, when I heard this story, I didn't understand this verse until then. That Jesus prayed with loud cries and with tears. This is a whole different type of prayer that the average person doesn't experience on a regular basis. But this is the role of Jesus as the priest. That He prays in such a way that we might not ever fully understand. Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we get great insight into the prayer life of Jesus. And I I, I took a minute uh, during the week and I started to ask this question about the varieties of prayer that you pray. And I wanted to ask 
about your prayer life. Because you're just in the same way that your brain and your heart are vital organs to your existence. Your, your prayer life is a vital part of your relationship with God. What does your prayer life look like? Are you sort of a before the meal prayer only? Are you a wake up in the morning and on your knees, hands high prayer? Are you a person who starts the conversation with God early in the morning and you silently pray throughout the day in loving responses as God brings things into your life and you're just continually in a state of prayer? Are you the kind of person who's so distracted that you have to get into a dark room and a dark area by yourself without distraction and, and just focus in prayer? There are so many varieties of prayers. I think I listed 40 of them. And I want to just read off a few of these in hopes that it will stimulate you to a greater prayer life. Understanding that Jesus had a, an extremely active, fruitful prayer life. And that is Christ's followers. You know, 1 Peter 2 says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people called to God to declare the glory of God. And so as a Christ follower, you are functioning as a priest, a mediator between your lost friends and family members and God. And so your prayer life has to be up to par. It has to be up to par. If, you're, if you name the name of Christ and you're not praying, if you can go a week or more without prayer, you're just not experiencing all the joy there is to have in your relationship with God as you could. Talk about some of these ways of prayer. Jesus described the Lord's Prayer in Mark. He described prayers of audacity in the way in which a, a, a friend goes to his neighbor at midnight and starts pounding on the door. Bring me food. I need food for a guest who's come. So there is the, this kind of a, audacious prayers. Are your prayers audacious? We all, many of us in uh, Navigators and in other ministries learned an acronym for prayer as a new believer that's A-C-T-S. You remember that ACTS acronym for prayer that we start with? Adoration. I saw it. We start next with confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And that sort of basic prayer outline got many of us started in our discipleship journey. There is intercession where you are praying on behalf of someone else. There are prayers of worship. There are moments where we pray Scripture. There are times when we ask God to provide for us, uh, provide something for us. There are routine prayers in which we wake up and there's a, a set number of prayers that you just pray according to a routine. There are uh, straight path prayers like this Proverbs 3, 5-6 through 6, that you're praying over your schedule, your events, your calendar. You're asking God to straighten the paths by acknowledging Him in all your ways. That's that Proverbs 3, 5-6 through 6 prayer. There are times of questioning prayer where you're asking God, is this really true? Is this really the way I should go? Is this really what you say? And is this really what you want to do? And there are those times when we wrestle with God in prayer. There are times of corporate prayer over the summer we had two prayer gatherings of days of prayer and fasting and, and in the end of the day 10 or 12 people are coming together to break that fast and go through corporate prayer there are times of congregational prayer where we're all coming together and we're praying for an issue or for something there is times of small group prayer that you will only find as you get involved with a small group of believers that you know and trust and that sort of intimacy that comes together where you're praying for each other's needs on a regular basis that kind of 
uh, small group prayer can be ex- extremely valuable. There is waiting prayer where you're waiting for God to do something. There is seeking prayer where you're waiting and seeking God about an issue. There is skeptical prayer that an unbeliever might deploy that just says, if you're out there, God, if, if you're really real, and there's that sort of skeptical prayer. There is the kind of prayer that asks for the Lord's will to be known that you're trying to discern the Lord's will. There is flare gun prayer where you, you're experiencing great temptation and just in the moment you have to fire off a quick prayer. Lord, deliver me from temptation in this moment. Will you help me as the temptation becomes more serious? There is a listening kind of prayer where you're contemplative and you're asking God to speak to you. There is conversational prayer that starts in the morning and goes throughout the day. There is missional prayer where you're praying throughout your neighborhood and you're praying for your lost friends and family members and you're asking God to save them and to convict them and to do a work in their life. There is prayer of defiance. You remember Daniel who responds to the king's edict that if anybody prays to someone besides me, they will immediately what? Get thrown into the lion's den. And so what does Daniel do? He marches right up to his room. He opens the windows wide, faces Jerusalem, and he gets on his knees and he prays as is as was his routine. There is earnest prayer that is prayer that is different in any other season of your life that has a sense of urgency to it. There is desperate prayer. There are prayers of despair and hopelessness where you don't feel like you can go on anymore. There is long-term daily disciplined prayer like in Luke 18.1 and the widow who needs justice. There is determined prayer. There are prayers of faith, prayers for healing, prayers of trust and resting in God, prayers for deliverance, prayers of repentance, prayers for salvation, prayers of submission and obedience, struggle, dedication, blessing, praying for your government, parental prayer, journaling prayer, silent prayer, prayer on your knees, laying prostrate prayer, standing prayer, imprecatory prayers, and relational prayers, and I have a lot more. (laughs) What does your prayer life look like? Are you settling for bless this and be with that? Occasional prayers? Listen, if that's describing your prayer life, that you're just saying God bless this person and be with that person, and and -and so-and-so has an injury and help them with that. Listen, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to discourage anybody about your prayer life. What I'm saying to you is that there is an ocean of ways that you can relate to God. And if you remain in the kiddie pool of prayer, you're never going to experience the abundant life that God offers you. There is life in Christ. And your prayer life is a reflection of your relationship with God. And if you're stuck in a rut, there are ways that you can get out of that rut. By the way, this list is available if you would like it. And it has some with Scripture references. And so if you'd like to explore different ways of prayer, I would like to resource you in that way. But the spiritual and uh, priestly prayer life of Jesus, this is just one glimpse into it. The Gospels are full of glimpses into Jesus' prayer life. The final thing I want to end with is this person of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about Melchizedek for a few weeks. So I I don't want to say too much, but he's a mystery. I'm going to introduce him to us this morning. So take a moment, turn over to Genesis chapter 14. First book of the Bible, flip all the way over to the left. and, uh, And right at the very beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 14, we see that Abraham's nephew, Lot, has settled down in Sodom 
And all the kings of the valley, the five kings of the valley have come and attacked and taken all these people away. And Abraham musters an army and they go after these kings and they take over. They 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 rout them. And in verse 11, the enemy takes all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions. And they also take Lot, who is the son of Abram's brother. And he was dwelling in Sodom and all of his possessions. And they went on their way. Someone escaped in verse 13 and they came and told Abram, the Hebrew uh, hey, they took a lot. And so in, um, uh, in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his household, 318 men of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan and divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions And also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and all the people. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer. That's a mouthful, by the way. After the return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. That means he blessed Melchizedek, blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What is this situation with Melchizedek? He's got this passage only. And then Psalm 110, and then a few passages, a few chapters in in Hebrews. So let's understand him. Let's meet Melchizedek. His name, Melchizedek, is two words together. Melchi means king. Zedek means righteousness. His name is given king of righteousness. He's also called the king of Salem. Salem is in and near Jerusalem. Salem is the word that means peace. You hear people say shalom, right? Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. So Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and a king of peace working in this pagan territory as the priest of God Most High. And he comes out and he gives an offering and a blessing to Abram. And Abram gives him a tenth of all of his goods. As we see here, there's an order of priests that are like Melchizedek. Psalm 110, written by David. David is going to say, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That was quoted here. Who is this guy that blesses Abraham, that Abraham gives him a tenth of everything? Who is this righteous king of peace, who is the priest of God Most High, who offers bread and wine in the Jerusalem area? Does that remind you of somebody? It reminds us of Jesus, that, that Jesus would be this blessing, offering his body, the bread, and his blood, the wine, that, that Jesus would be like this priest, this priest of God Most High, and that he would be offering him a tenth of everything. These are all things that would be ascribed to God himself. So what is significant about this? It leads us to the question, is Melchizedek Jesus? Hebrews 7 is going to say that he's without genealogy, that he's without beginning or end. And so whether he is or not, if this is a Christophany, if this is a pre-incarnate Jesus who is blessing Abraham before Abraham is even Abraham, really, 
Jesus becomes and fulfills the role of priest like this guy and not like the Aaronic high priesthood, right? The point the author of Hebrews is making is, do you see how much more superior Jesus is? Do you see how much more? He doesn't inherit the flawed priesthood of Aaron. What happened with Aaron's sons? Aaron's sons were killed immediately when they they offered their offerings in, in a way that God didn't prescribe. It was a flawed priesthood that foreshadowed something. But Jesus took on a greater priesthood. He took on a priesthood that reflected the righteousness of God and that He was sinless. And He took on a priesthood that was filled with peace. And He took on a priesthood that was able to more adequately atone for the sins of His people. The high priest would go in the most high place once a year at the Day of Atonement in the fall. He would offer the sacrifice for sins and for the people. But Jesus was able to do it one time through a perfect sacrifice. And that's what the author of Hebrews paints that picture in such a short way. That although He was a son, He learned obedience. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Hebrews 5.9 says that Jesus was made perfect and was the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey Him. You don't think that's somebody that's important to know? (laughs) You don't think that's something that, that the author of Hebrews is trying to persuade these Jewish listeners not to backslide? You have in Christ the source of eternal salvation. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect that. People in the room, you're struggling, you're hurting, you're going through a variety of different trials and difficulties. Understand that Jesus is the greatest high priest that you could ever find anywhere. And He makes it possible for you to enter into the presence of God at any moment to find grace and peace and mercy in your time of need. That's the high priest we serve. And if that doesn't cause a worship song to rise within you, if that doesn't make you grateful for your relationship with Jesus, I don't know what to say. (laughs) But you have in Christ all that you need for a life of godliness. It's my hope and prayer that you would continue to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for the gift that you gave us in your Son. That He is as much superior as anything that we could ever find anywhere. I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us not to neglect the salvation which you purchased for us through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you forgive us when we neglect that? Would you forgive us when we reduce a relationship with you to occasional prayers and occasional church attendance? Would you help us to understand and experience the abundant life that you promised for us in Jesus Christ? Would you help us to walk in such a way that we are overflowing with joy and peace so that in the midst of trials, as 1 Peter says in chapter 2, that we can function as a high priest role for our lost friends and neighbors, that when they see us suffer, when they see us struggle, They also see within us a peace that surpasses all understanding. They see a joy that overwhelms us, a peace that covers our face. They see in us a hope in Jesus Christ that can be fulfilled by no other human, but only by Jesus. Would you help us to be that so that people around us who see us will see you through us? Let us function in that way so that you may receive the glory through these weak and broken vessels. And we ask it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.